So if you've heard me speak, you probably learned uh, about me that I grew up in the swamp, right? And so I've got all these like funny stories about growing up with swamp people. Um, but also where I grew up uh, in Mississippi, I grew up on the coast. And so there was a swamp that my house was in, but then there's also the ocean that's not very far from me. Uh, and so I remember at a very young age, the first time uh, we got in uh, a boat, which wasn't we got in like a sea, like a seaworthy boat, which wasn't very often for my family. We were really poor, and like seaworthy boats are like really expensive. Uh, and you don't want to like most of the boats we had were like aluminum flat bottom. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but they were small boats. You would not want to get out in the ocean with. You would get wrecked immediately. Uh, but I remember the first time I did get in a mostly seaworthy uh, boat, and went. We just like set out to sea to do some fishing or whatever, and. Uh, the first experience in my life where I was in, I was in water, and everywhere I looked, all, there was just more water. Like, you, you go out far enough, and you just don't see land at all. Everything you see around you is sky and water. And at first, that's like, man, that's really cool. And then you remember those pictures of, like, the guy on the kayak, and then, like, this giant thing under the water that is, like, a bajillion times bigger than him, and you're like, oh, wait, that's me now. That's, that's me now. Like, I'm, like, this small compared to pretty much everything that is under me right now. Uh, like, if, if this boat starts leaking, we're gone, and nobody knows where we are. Like, this is Bermuda Triangle. Like, we're gone, man, uh, sort of thing. And so I remember this, the, like, the moment of, like, terror. So, like, I'm trying to think of, like, the only thing scarier to me than, like, being lost at sea is, like, being, like, a, a pit of vipers or something like that, because snakes are the worst. Uh, but, like, a whole bunch of snakes I can't get away from, and then, like, being stuck out in the ocean. Like, those are, like, the two scariest things to me. And so I remember, I, I was probably, like, nine or something, so I just remember, like, all right, I'm having fun. Oh, wait, no, I'm not having fun anymore. This is, this is not cool. Right, right? But then, you know, like a lot of things, it, like, circles back around, and you're like, okay, all right, this is cool. But, like, there was... The first time I, like, actually, before, like, all the terror set in and all that kind of stuff, when I just, like, looked around, there was just this, this moment where I just sort of looked around and, like, marveled at everything around, right? Have you ever had those moments where you've, um, maybe this is a word you don't use a lot, other than, like, talking about comic books and movies and stuff, um, but the word marvel, like, to look around and be, like, amazed at what's around you, to look around and be like, yeah, that's awesome, man. I, have you ever, you ever had those moments, like sunrise, sunset? Like, there's a lot of different moments where you can just step back and go, man, that's awesome. Just looking at something, and you just can't help but marvel at how awesome that thing is. We're going to look at a moment uh, that Jesus has, which you would think, like, God of the universe knows everything in existence, created everything in existence. He had a moment where he was, like, marveling at something. Like, he was like, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, the very first time you see that is actually in Genesis Whenever he makes man, he steps back. Whenever he makes us, right? And like he steps back and he's like, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then there's this, this moment we're going to uh, look at in just a second. Let me give you a little bit of context. So, uh, Britt and I have been teaching through the book of Matthew, and we just sort of wrapped up um, this, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's like the longest recorded message we have of Jesus, uh, Jesus speaking. He spoke a whole bunch, but this is the longest message we have of him. Uh, speaking. And, and over and over and over again in this sermon, he's, he's taking what the, the people around him, the Israelites, the Jewish people, what they understood to be like the core principles of the law that they were following um, and turning them upside down 
and almost seemingly doing away with them. And he wasn't, he wasn't, doing, he wasn't like destroying the law because he can't fulfill the law, right? But what he was doing was uh, he was telling them it's much, much more than what you think it is, both good and bad, right? Like it's not just about obeying the law and it's not even just about obeying the letter of the law. It's about your heart and your relationship with Jesus. So, or with, for them, it was with God. Um, but over and over and over again in this message, he says, hey, you've heard this thing but let me tell you, it's actually about this. And every time he just points them to their heart. And so he finished, he wraps up this uh, sermon and then he starts to walk off uh, the mountain. And I want you to see chapter uh, seven. So we're in the book of Matthew. I'll give you a second turn there. Matthew chapter seven. This is still just to set up where we're going. This is at the final passage, but this, I don't want us to miss these two verses here at the end of chapter seven. So Matthew seven, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these things. So he just finished, he's wrapped up this message. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I don't want us to miss this here because it's already starting to establish the authority that Jesus carried around. And so what they mean by it is like Jesus spoke about these things in such a way that just it conveyed authority that he knew what he was talking about, where the scribes, they were all either wishy-washy or they were just trying to like browbeat people and conform them into behavior and all this kind of stuff. But the way Jesus spoke was different than every other teacher, every other teacher they had heard, every other scribe, every other Pharisee, all of that. It was different. And so then uh, chapter eight comes around and it starts this uh, like couple of chapters of of miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle that Jesus, that word's kind of funny to say like over and over and over again, don't do it but, because you'll just get distracted like I am right now and I can't stop, just saying it over and over again in my head, anyway, uh, so he, he does all these miracles, he does, he does all these healings and the first one, he uh, heals this leper which is, which is really cool uh, you know, that he would heal somebody, but the people that Jesus chose to hang out with and the people that Jesus chose to heal were very interesting and so he finishes this sermon where he starts at the very beginning of it saying things like, blessed are the poor uh, in spirit, blessed are those uh, who mourn, blessed are the meek, like saying that, you know, these people are the ones who are blessed are completely different than what you and even you and I, but especially the people he's talking to, like they would not put people in poor in spirit, people who are mourning, he, they wouldn't put them on the list of people who are blessed, but that's, that's where Jesus starts. And so right after he finishes this message, the first thing he does is he heals someone from leprosy, which was considered, the, this person was considered unclean. They, were pushed, they weren't even allowed to live like in the town with everybody else. They had their own like segregated area they were supposed to be in. They were unclean, and whenever they walked around, they had to be completely covered, every inch of their body covered, and they had to yell, unclean, unclean, like they could not be in society really at all. And the first person that Jesus really interacts with is this leper. After he's gone through this whole sermon about the way we're supposed, the way we're really called to live life, not following rules, but this relationship with God and loving others. And so the first thing he does is he, he interacts with somebody who we would just think, man, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be around those people. That's the first person he comes to. And so he's just acting out what he's just taught. He's living out what he's just taught. So then we come to the actual story. We're going to, um, there's a lot of good stuff in here, and so I hate that we're moving so quickly through this. Um, you should read all the Bible, but man, you should really read Matthew. It's good stuff. Um, so we come to this story here in verse 5. Uh, it goes like this. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion, so the Roman centurion's military person, this is a Gentile, 
they aren't Jewish, um, and uh, and they're part of the Roman military. So like probably the most among the most hated people by Jesus' audience. So Jesus just finished a sermon where there are like hundreds of people. He was up on this mountain, hundreds of people. He was talking to mostly Jewish audience, uh, and he comes off of this uh, mountain as he's coming off, heals a leper, and then this Roman centurion Gentile comes up to Jesus. Um, let's jump back in. And he says uh, at verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And uh, this, this is really fun to me. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. And so let me set the picture a little bit for you. So Jesus, like hundreds, gobs and gobs and gobs of people around Jesus. He's walking down. He's like, you know, high-fiving whatever he did. I don't know. That's JJ's mental image of what's happening because I like high-fives. So I just imagine Jesus high-fiving people. Um, and so you can imagine whatever you'd like there. That's fine. Um, so Jesus is coming off this mountain and uh, this... Uh, outcast. He's a social outcast, basically. This, this soldier, this Roman soldier, walks up to Jesus and says, hey, my servant at home is paralyzed. He hadn't even really, like, asked the question yet, like, hey, can, what are you going to do about it or anything? Kind of he was just like, hey, that, my servant at home is paralyzed. Everybody around is just assuming that Jesus is going to be like, sorry, bud, and, like, keep walking along or whatever, because this is a Gentile guy who, again, is considered unclean in the in the Jewish realm of things to interact with a Gentile. You would either, you would have to do this like wash ceremony and like all this stuff, especially if you were to like go to that person's home. But the first thing Jesus does is he, uh, you know, the, the guy speaks to him and Jesus goes, "Cool, all right, let's go to your house, let's go." Right? And ever I just imagine, have you ever been in those situations where like something's happened and maybe you were a part of the group, but there's always that I call the whisper group. You know what I'm talking about? Like something happens and there's always that group, usually girls, and they're all like. I mean, like, there's, like, all these things that happened. It was awesome. I can't forget it. Uh, like, the, the day I die, I'm still going to be remembering that moment. Anyway, that's beside the point. But there's always, like, that whisper group. And so there's, like, all these people around. And so I just imagine Jesus tells this Gentile soldier guy, he says, sure, yeah, let's go to your house. I'll take care of that. And everyone's like, what? What are you doing, Jesus? Constantly, over and over and over again, as you, as you read through the, the life of Jesus, I feel like every time Jesus, almost every time he does something or opens his mouth, everybody around him, eventually I think the disciples kind of get used to it, but like everybody around him is always asking the question, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? Because he lived a life that was so completely different than what they had thought someone should, the Messiah especially, should live their lives. So this is another one of those moments. So he says, I'll come and heal him. But then something interesting happens. Because you're, so this guy comes to Jesus he, did, he hadn't asked the question yet, but he's basically about to ask the question. You know, his servant uh, is paralyzed. Jesus says, okay, I'll come and heal him. And you assume that the, the centurion's going to be like, sweet, this is awesome. Jesus is coming to my house. Uh, we're going to hang out. We're going to be best buds. He's going to heal this guy. It's going to be incredible, right? But what does the guy do? What does he do? He says, but the centurion replies, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come uh, under my roof. So the centurion goes, nah, I'd rather you not. Can you imagine... Can you imagine Jesus at that moment? Like, I, Jesus is, you know, like, perfectly holy, so this is not how he responded, I'm sure. But, like, I imagine, like, if I'm like, yeah, I'll come do something awesome for you, and somebody goes, no, no, I don't, I don't think you should. Uh, I'm going to immediately be like, wait, what? What? You don't, you don't want me to come now? But there's something incredible here, though. He says, Lord, I 
am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He starts to humble himself immediately. And he goes on and um, he says, but, I only, uh, but only say the word. And so the guy's like, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. But I know, Jesus, I know that you, all you have to do is say the word, and then my servant is healed. And at this moment, he, he, says, he says a few other words here about him having, you know, he, the soldier, being in charge of other soldiers, and he can say a word and they do things. And so Jesus has the same kind of power over disease. And so that's what he fully believes and has faith in at this moment, that Jesus has power over everything, but especially uh, disease and illness and all this stuff, that Jesus could just speak a word, doesn't have to be in the room, doesn't have to be in the same building, can just say a word and the person's healed. That's the kind of faith that this um, centurion had. And then this is that moment where Jesus, Jesus like steps back and he's like, yeah, buddy. Yeah, right? Like, I know that was cheesy. You can laugh a little bit, right? So like he, uh, are you guys awake? Cool, cool. You guys are like stone quiet tonight. It's all right. Um, but this, this is that moment where, where this guy lays out his faith and his trust in Jesus. And Jesus, it says... In verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and, uh, and said those, uh, excuse me, and said to those who followed, sorry, so we'll get to what he said in a minute. He marveled. The God of the universe had a moment where he stepped back, looked at this man and said, that is awesome, right? And so there's like almost this range of emotions, I imagine. Of course, Jesus probably knew like, the whole interaction was coming because he's Jesus and he's God and all this thing. But I just imagine, uh, you know, this guy comes up, says what he says. Jesus says, cool, I'll come do that. And that guy says, no, 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 no. All you got to do is say the word. And so Jesus is kind of like step, kind of like taken back for a minute. This guy wouldn't want him to come. And then this guy proves his faith, proves his belief in Jesus. And Jesus can't help but be amazed at this man. But, but what was it about this man that Jesus was amazed by. It was his faith. It was a man's faith that Jesus was, Jesus marveled at. So what kind of, so that brings me to the question, what kind of faith, what is it about this man, what is it about his faith that makes Jesus step back and go, man, that's awesome. Like, just marvel at what's going on uh, in this man's life, because I, I want that kind of faith. I want a kind of faith that Jesus steps back and goes, that's awesome. That's incredible, right? So often, whenever you hear people like me, you hear preachers and that kind of stuff, talk about how you're supposed to live life or how Christians are supposed to live and all this, what kind of faith we're supposed to have. What's the, like, what's the number one thing they always say, right? You're supposed to be like Jesus, right? Some of you like, have been in church your whole life. You're like, yeah, Jesus, that's the answer, right? You always be like Jesus. See, here's the thing that's always, for me, I'm just going to, you want honest JJ moment, right? For me, I'm always like, all right, so I'm supposed to be like Jesus, who was, he was human, right? I mean, he was, he was fully human, he was tempted, he felt pain, all the things, right? He was human, but he's also God, right? Like, he's also literally the God of the universe, right? So, okay, all right, cool, 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 cool. So I'm supposed to be like God. Yeah, it's not happening, right? Like, I'm, I'm just never going to be exactly like Jesus, because like Jesus, I am fully human, so I got, that, I got that nailed down. But unlike Jesus, no part of me 
is God, right? Like, that's just not how it works. And so over and over and over again, I'm like, okay, be like Jesus. That's the end goal, right? Like, ultimately, you get to heaven, I will hopefully be made perfect, I'll get to hang out with him, and like, sin and evil is gone. That'd be great. But until that moment, like, I'm striving. I'm trying to be like Jesus, but it's almost overwhelming sometimes to try and be like Jesus, the only human who ever was perfect, right? Uh, is, that over, is that a little overwhelming, right? Somebody's like, just be like Jesus. This means yes. This means no. This is I'm asleep. Cool. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. But here, this is just a normal dude. This is just another non-God human guy that whatever it is about his faith makes Jesus take notice, makes him step back and be amazed. Let's say, did you look at that? So let's look. Let's look a little bit about uh, this man. What is it about his faith? What is it about him that made Jesus marvel at him? Because that's because that's what I want. That's I want, I want to live a life that I don't care what you jokers think about me. I don't care what really. I mean, at some level I do, but I try to live my life in a way that I don't care about what you guys think about me or what anybody thinks about me. But I care what God thinks about me. To be able to live a life in a way that God looks at me and looks at Fat Man JJ and goes. That's awesome, right? Not that I'm fat, but like that I'm living a life of faith and like I'm trying to like live hard after him. Like I want, I want that. I want God to look at me and go, man, that's incredible, right? Are you with me? You want that too? Those of you who are following Jesus? Would you not want God to like be amazed at your life? Yeah. So let's, let's try and look and see what maybe we can learn from this normal dude. Not Jesus. I mean, still be like Jesus. I'm not saying don't be like Jesus. But normal guy that Jesus is amazed by. So the first thing, let's jump back up to verse 6. The first thing, the very first thing that this guy says to Jesus is Lord. And this is a term that we don't really use today very much. You might have some sort of context of uh, this word, maybe like if you watch like those old like British shows or whatever and they're always walking around, my Lord, right? That's kind of, I guess, what this is about. But this... Uh, this word, just a little context here. Um, sorry, that was funny. I didn't intend to say that. My Lord, right? They always say it like that, right? Or at least I think so. Uh, anytime I'm trying to be British, my Lord. Um, all right, move on, JJ. Move on, move on. Um, so this is a title. This is a title that uh, someone says to uh, another person that uh, is declaring that this person has power, has authority, or influence. And in like our terms, you, I guess you could say boss, but it's actually much more than that, especially in this context, right? So this guy, who's, again, he's not Jewish, he's from the Roman Empire, which believes in like a bajillion gods, right? Um, walks up to Jesus, and the first thing he says is, Lord, he acknowledges the authority, the power that Jesus has. And in declaring, like whenever you call someone Lord, it's not just a declaration of, of acknowledging their authority and their power, but it's also a submission yourself. Because by acknowledging their power and authority, you're submitting on some level to that power and authority. And so this was, this was a form of acknowledgement and submission. This guy, the very first thing he would say to Jesus is Lord. And so then he asks 
uh, or he talks about his servant. My servant is laying paralyzed at home, uh, suffering terribly. Interesting if you really unpack that. So this guy, obviously, um, he, he says later on, right, that he, he controls, he's a centurion, so he probably, I think it's like, it was like 100-something soldiers, something like that. So he was in charge. He was like a boss of like a certain number of soldiers and that kind of thing. He had a house where he had servants and all, and all this sort of thing. So he was like the like head dude of this sort of deal, right? Servants, I mean, you even kind of understand that servants were like lesser, right? They were people that people like this guy wouldn't normally care about at all. But yet, this guy, however, I don't, I don't know how far he's, he's traveled or any of that kind of stuff. I'm not even going to try and like make up something like, he traveled a bajillion days to go see Jesus. We don't know that. But he did go out of his way to go find Jesus, who is standing in this like horde of humans, right? Like there's like hundreds of people standing around him, and this guy like works his way through this crowd and, and like goes up to Jesus calls him Lord, acknowledging his authority and power, which is one thing. Like, that's, that's where it all starts, right? Faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus, starts with admitting that he is Lord. And then, and then he shows that he cares about his servant. So this guy understands the authority and power that Jesus has over all things. And he cares about someone that society would say he shouldn't care about. He cares about the lesser. He cares about the poor. What did Jesus just spend in what we have here, three chapters talking about, was about loving God and loving others, regardless of whether they're your enemy or whether they're social outcasts or any of that kind of stuff. We are to love God. We are to love others. And so this guy, right off the bat, He's showing his understanding of Jesus' authority, and he cares for this person who is outcast, who's poor, who's lesser, who's needy. So those are, those are two elements right there that, that Jesus sees in this guy and makes Jesus step back and go, man, that's awesome, right? You understand who I am, which is awesome. And you care about someone that you shouldn't care about, but you really should care about, right? And what I mean by that is society says this guy shouldn't care about, but God says we are to equally care about one another, which is one of the cool things about the way the church is supposed to work. Whenever, we become, whenever you become Christians, we're all equal. Paul talks about this later on, right? Like, in faith, there's nothing but followers of Jesus. There's no race, there's no uh, gender, any of that. We are all equally followers of Jesus. And so when he sees in this man that he cares about his servant, he's, it, Jesus is just amazed by that. He's like, that's, that's what you were created to be right there. Someone who understands my authority, who loves me, and loves the people around you, regardless of their status in life. And so then, you know, after Jesus says, hey, let me come and heal the guy, the guy says, no, no, no. He says, Lord, again, he says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This guy humbles himself before Jesus. He's like, look, I am not worthy. He's humbling himself. He's overwhelmed at the, the, at the goodness and the power of Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. I don't want you to see my house. I don't know. I assume his house wasn't like a dump or anything, so it wasn't like one of those like, nah, you probably shouldn't come to my place, right? Um, now I won't tell you that story. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, not going to tell you that story. Anyway, 
So this guy, he, says, he humbles himself. He says, no, 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 I am not worthy of you to even come close to my house. Right? This reminds me uh, of a different story in Scripture where somebody says, I'm not even, John um, the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. This guy gets it. He humbles himself and realizes in comparison to Jesus who he is. And then, so he's, he's admitted that Jesus is Lord. He care, he's caring for a servant, somebody who society says he shouldn't care for. He's humbled himself before Jesus. And then he shows his faith, his true belief in Jesus. And he says, all you got to do is say the word, and my servant is healed. He understands. See, we don't, we don't have any proof that before this moment, Jesus performed a miracle in this way. What I would call a long-distance uh, long miracle, right? Um, long-distance calling. That was a fun thing. You remember that, Garrett? When you, that was like actually a thing? You had to like pay for that stuff? Anyway, I don't know. I'm all over the map tonight. But uh, long-distance miracle. This is uh, when I was writing today. I was like, ha, long-distance miracle. That's funny. Um, because I have a weird sense of humor that not many people but Garrett gets. But that's okay. Um, but we have no proof that Jesus had performed a miracle like this before. And so just by what we have context-wise, this guy is not working off prior knowledge or prior uh, experience or any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't know that Jesus just says like, oh, that guy can be healed, you know, two states over. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that at all. But his faith is so strong in the, in the authority and power that Jesus has that he just knows. If you are who you say you are, which I believe you are, then all you, do, all you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is say the word. And my servant is healed. This is incredible. And, that's, and so that's when Jesus, seeing all of this, seeing a man who, who understands who Jesus is, who loves his servant, who humbles himself before him and has faith like that, Jesus steps back and is just in awe. He says, that's, that's how you were created to live. That's how you were created to be right there. And so then Jesus, uh, let's jump down here into verse 10. So how did... After Jesus marveled at this man and his faith, this is what Jesus turned to all the other people around him who we would assume most of the crowd are um, Israelites who are Jewish people. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So, wait, wait, wait. Jesus, in context, talking about a Gentile Roman soldier turns to his mostly Jewish audience and says, not a single one of you have faith like this man. There's not been a single Israelite, a single Jewish person that I have met who has faith like this man. See, like Israelites, they were God's chosen people, right? So you would assume like, okay, there's like a special place for these people, right? So they would have to have incredible faith. They do all these like rituals. They do all these sacrifices. They, they're like super religious people. They're God's chosen people. And yet Jesus turns to them and says, nowhere in Israel have I found anyone who has faith like this guy does. Starts the whisper crowd again. Can you believe Jesus just said that? What? This